No, 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 no. Don't. Debbie, you got a stack, right? Yes. Yeah. Um. And it's just this stack here, like this. It's, mm -hmm. clipped, it's a paper clip poetry. Starts with the songs on the top. Okay, let's start. You remember, just you take a whole, yeah. So is this the whole thing here? No. No. Um, remember Blake is um, one of the earliest romantic poets in England and a great admirer of Milton. And in some ways, very, very much like him, very independent. His attitude towards established religions was um, just like uh, Milton's. He believed that one of the most important things in a person was the purity of his own heart, this inner life, this inner purity. He looked, um, you remember from the, from the pieces we read last time, he looked at England as falling under a curse virtually. Remember. Awake, England, awake, awake, Jerusalem, thy sister calls. He really believed that, that every city was called to be like an image of the, it was an ectype of the archetype. It was an earthy copy of the heavenly city. So that every city should in some ways emulate the heavenly kingdom and be a copy of the new Jerusalem. So remember that. England, awake, awake, um, Jerusalem, thy sister calls, why will thou sleep, the sleep of death, and close her from thy ancient, you know. England has separated itself. It's become an unholy, and this is, this is, um, what, eight, 18th, where are we, 18th century? Um, 18th, early 19th century. And remember the grief he expressed at looking around at what he saw as one of the effects of industrialization, the satanic mills. You know, the, the, all of the factories and mills that for him were inhuman because the people who were working them were, in, were virtually enslaved. My own personal view in, in, on that is it, it hasn't changed. We put ourselves in front of a computer, largely for a job or even at home, without having any sense that we become what we do. That there's something machine-like enters our personhood. Every age. <clears throat> so Blake looked on those things with horror, you know, that something was eating away at our Christian call, I mean, our, our call to be Christ-like. And remember, like Milton, he really believed that the most important thing was this inner purity, this, this, this spiritual consciousness. And all of the romantics, including Blake, associated the, the, the faculty that was most capable of doing that is the imagination, not reason. Um, remember the scientific revolution is underway and, and, and as Blake saw it, um, he would have saw that as a horror. Um, one of the reasons they look to the imagination is because they think, they think reason right now has become mechanical, empirical. That's not the way um, Plato looked at reason, it's not the way Aristotle looked at reason, it's not the way Thomas looked at reason. Reason was a wide-ranging power. It, it had a power, what, what the ancients called ratio, discursive, one thing at a time, we reason things out. 
Aristotle says that there is um, an intuitive power, what he called, into, or what was called um, after him, I can't remember the Greek word for it, but the Roman word would have been, into, maybe even Greek, intellectus, to grasp a whole as it is. That's one of the powers of reason. That whole way of understanding reason was lost in, in that time. So the, so the Romantics did everything they could to dissociate themselves from reason as it, as it was becoming. Um, so they looked at the imagination as the health-giving power, and they associated Christ with that as the, as the origins, the source of all of it, the creative imagination. Um, so just, we, we talked about that, we, we looked at that with those small passages. Today I want to look at the two poems, London and Tiger, and I want to go over them just briefly. When, when I read London, keep in mind, when Blake looks around him, he uses the word chartered contract, legal contract. Remember what Charles Dickens, I don't know if, you, if, if you've read Charles, Charles Dickens, a work like Bleak House, you know that Dickens had the same concern because he saw the laws being imposed everywhere that were making for inhuman conditions in, in England and in London. That's Dickens, a little bit later. When Blake looks out on the world, he sees chartered an, a network of laws covering men in a way that was, once again, dehumanizing. And he sees the, the fault for that condition um, resting in the state, in its institutions, and the church. Because remember, he thinks established powers are corrupt by nature. So keep that in mind as I read this, okay? Chartered. It's like a network over, over the Thames River. And watch what he does with a palace, because the palace, which would be um, the source of defense for a country, is running with blood. And the church, which should be the source of protection of our souls, is also corrupted. And then it comes, all of these corruptions come down to what's most fundamental for the continuity of a civilization, which is marriage and what goes on between a man and a woman. Okay? So just keep those in your mind. And then we'll do Tiger. London. <clears throat> I wander through each chartered street near where the chartered Thames does flow and mark in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe. In every cry of every man, in every infant's cry of fear, in every voice, in every band, the mind forged manacles I hear. There it is, the mind forged manacles. The reasons that we give ourselves and the way we impose it in an inhuman way on ourselves and each other. And in every band, the chimney sweepers cry, every blackening church appalls, and the hapless soldier's sigh runs in blood down palace walls. But most through midnight streets I hear how the youthful harlots curse Blast the newborn infant's tear and blights with plagues the marriage hearse. And notice that the marriage has turned into a hearse. Even the law of marriage has um, struck at the heart of this thing. The harlot's curse, I'm assuming, is gonorrhea, one of the venereal diseases that husbands are going out to prostitutes, and that's having its effect. So, dark, dark poem. Tiger, 
<clears throat> just a brief word here. Our grandson is, I think, third grade, said something, fourth grade, young, third, third fourth grade, um, said something to his teacher about my teaching, and so she invited me to come teach a poem, or maybe it was this that she asked me, I can't remember, but we did this poem, fourth grade. It was an interesting experience for me. I think I did it, you know, trying to communicate something to a fourth grade class. Because I, I started with the idea of a template, buttons, you know, a pattern for kids, because most kids know. And Keep that in mind here, okay? Um, Blake's not talking about the tiger as we think about it. Um, you'll see as we read the. This is a tiger of the night. It's of the forest of the night. So hold on to this carefully. This is a tiger that has affinities with night. It's not a tiger as we know it, okay? Um, and you'll see, as we go through the poem, that Blake's really talking about the creative imagination and the temp, what's the word, archetype, the pattern, the template. Now hold on to that because, this is very platonic, by the way, very, very platonic. Um, you know that for Plato, or for those of you who've been around for a while, you know that for Plato, the, the, the way that he explains the universality of things, the essences of things, is by what he calls the forms. The form of bedness, the form of humans, the form of trees. How do we explain the fact that all trees, even, even though they're all, everyone is, not only are they all different as individual trees, one oak is different from another oak individually, but they're different in species. Oak, eucalyptus, you know, all but, but Plato's saying, how can all trees have treeness in common? So his explanation for that was the universality of things, the essences that they share, have their origins in what he called the forms, a form of bedness, or a form of bed, a form of tree, a form of human, a form of horse. It was from those that all particular things came. Otherwise, how do we explain the fact that all horses have hoarseness in common? You following? Mm -hmm. So his effort to account for the uni universality behind things, that he, all of us are here are humans, but every one of us is different. So while we're all different, there's still something universal. We share something or we wouldn't be humans. We wouldn't even be having this class, right? Plato's explanation were these forms. And he said, they are eternal, unchanging. The things in the world undergo change, but they keep their essence. There has to be something to explain it. He called them the forms. Okay? <laughs> At the physical level, it still doesn't explain something beyond, but yeah. Um, Aris, or Saint, Saint Augustine took that notion because he was very platonic in his thinking. And he said what Plato called the forms were the ideas in God's mind. Okay? Now hold that thought just for a second. The, the, what Plato called the forms, um, because where, even where did DNA come from? I mean, that, there, there has to be a metaphysical, how, how did something come out of nothing? There has to be a metaphysical condition for things or we can't explain things when they come into this world. So St. Uh, Augustine called them the ideas in God's mind. And here's the point I want to make. 
If you ran into a tiger in the African jungle, you were turning a corner and suddenly there was a tiger, what would your response be? Hmm? Fear. Fear. I, I, I'll say terror. Yeah. Fear doesn't come close. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it would be a, a paralyzing terror. Mm -hmm. If you could run, it would be a good thing. You know, I'm assuming a lot of us would just freeze. freeze. Yeah. Okay, if, if you can imagine that, imagine what it would be like to look at the ideas in God's mind. If looking at a real tiger is terrifying, what would it be like to see its actual archetype? Because there's something in our tradition, in Catholic tradition, religious tradition, whatever it is, that, that sees God as awful, numinous, severe, the source of judgment. There's a sense of awe and mystery. In the, certainly for me, in, in, as a growing up at Greek Orthodox Church, there's a far greater sense of awe and mystery. If you've ever been present at an Orthodox Mass, you, you'll know there's a much greater sense of uh, an awe and reverence to things than, the, than in the Western Church. The Western Church has become casual and this way, centered. The Orthodox Church, had, the priest has his back and he's behind a, a kind of stasis, a kind of, a kind of stasis with his back to the congregation, looking at the Holy of Holies. Because the understanding is, is there is this world of mystery, and we approach it in dread and awe. Okay? So if you were to look at the, the archetypes, the forms in God's mind, and an earthly tiger would scare you, what would it be like to look at? Okay? So, tiger. Remember now, Whatever his identity is, it has an identity, an affinity with the night, with the force of the night. So he's talking about the obscure darkness of the creative imagination in its ultimate form, not just in its human form, which is itself mysterious. If any of you have ever done creative work, you know how mysterious it is. Where did it all come from? How could Milton have done such an extraordinary thing? Where did that come from? If that's true of us, what's it like with God? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies? See, you already have it. What distant deeps or He's not talking about the sky as we know it. In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? Who could touch that fire in that forge? Because the image there is a forge, the template, this, the source of all creative activity out of this world in eternity with God. Or And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? If you can imagine the dread of this, what would the maker of it be like? What would he, that creative hand of God's be like? He's, you know the word numinous? It's a Christian word, the numinous, the numinal means the awful, the dreadful, the, those aspects of God. So it's what Job had to face when Job was wanting to explain God and sort of reduce him, bring him down to a manageable size, and God comes to him and says, Who do you think you are anyway? Basically. What the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp, dare its deadly terrors clasp? 
And when the stars threw down their spheres, that's the fall that we've been reading about in Satan, I mean in Milton, the third of heaven fell. When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who make the lamb make thee? So you already see this is associated with Satan the, 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 because it's set in opposition to the lamb. Did he smile his work to see? Did he who make the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. What immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? I'm going to read it through now without my comment because I'd like you to just hear it. I should have been still. The tiger. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? I think one of the reasons I was glad to be invited to that fourth grade class is because um, you, you know from Blake's poems, because we've read several of them now, you know how simple his language is. There's not a word in there that a fourth grader won't know. You know. And most people, if you think about this, most people, when, I think about high school teachers who read this, who won't have a clue. I mean, they just won't understand. That's at high school level. Um, there's not a fourth grader who couldn't or read this poem. The language is so simple. Blake's language is so simple. A fourth grader could read it. All these poems, they're pretty simple. But understand it? Another thing. You know, I've been hitting you over the head about reading for years. I mean, really, seriously. I don't know. I, it would have been interesting if I'd said to you four weeks ago, I want you to read Tiger, Tiger. I wonder how many of you would have seen it. I know that I didn't. On my first, I mean, I, it's been so slow coming for me as a reader. I, I don't know if I told you the story when I first, when I transferred from JC after I'd flunked out of college and went to UC Berkeley and was an English major and had to take a lit crit class because I was a major. It was my first year there as a junior because I did my lower division at JC. And the teacher that I took there, who was one of the great influences in my life, had a section on poetry. I'd never read poetry in high school. And I read it, I mean, I'm not kidding. I'm a junior, I'm older. It was a section on poetry. I'm not kidding about this. I, I read the poetry, it left me absolutely confused. I think partly I was mystified because it was poetry. It wasn't pro statements. You're sort of used to growing up, you know, in advertisements you read. I, probably the form, you know, I, but the language too. And I went to him, I, it, to me it was like Greek. I, it was like a foreign language, I'm not kidding. His words to me, I'll never forget them. He said, poetry is, poetry is made up of words that refer to things um, that make up statements that say something about reality. Well, it 
just demystified poetry suddenly. If that's all it was, I could understand it. But I'm just saying that to you because I remember the first time I read poetry, I was blown. But you know, I mean, we've been doing this for a couple of years. I read lyrics all the time, and I think you understand them. I mean, when we go through them, um, it's hard for it's. I laugh at this because I know most people would look at Tiger, Tiger, and think fourth grade poem. I mean, it's so simple. Who can? But if you look at what Blake's doing, anybody ask why? He spelled tiger with Y instead of an I? I think it was the spelling back then, Don. Was it? Would it said was typical. There may be something more that I don't know about. I was going to say, maybe it's representing something else, not the tiger. tiger with the I. I think that that was more... There's still an... Ant, um, what's the word? Antiquated, you know, in some of the English language. Still. Blake, Blake's looking back to... Um, Honestly, I'm not sure other than that. If there's another reason, I'm not aware of it. But. Okay, Milton. Very, very quickly. Um, um, a couple of things that are really important to make clear here. There's not a question in the mind of anybody who reads Milton seriously that Milton took this ep epic absolutely seriously. This was not a light matter for him. He had been contemplating an epic for ages. He went through a long period where he thought the epic that he would write would deal with Arthurian romances, with chivalry and knighthood. With, with this is interesting. He'll even refer to it in the poem. With heroic deeds of men. Heroic deeds of men. Um, at some point that changed. Remember, he, he, um, he underwent a number of religious conversions. If, if you can call them that, I'm, not, I'm really not quite sure what to call them because they're not even quite that. He believed in Christ all of his life. He, um, he, we've gone through this. His grandfather was Catholic, his father Anglican. He identified himself with the Reformation thinkers, and particularly in its um, Presbyterian form. But he became disillusioned with the Presbyterians after they took office and in his mind began to do what the Catholic Church did, impose its, its beliefs on everybody. And once, so when he gets disillusioned with the Presbyterian, he, it, it's during a period when he's gradually dissociating himself from politics. Um, house arrest for a while, really in exile. And, and it's during that period that he, he intensely um, thinks about the epic that he wants to write, and then finally decides to do this. Um, Milton knew the epic tradition as well as anybody. How well he read it is a serious question for me. Um, but he knew it in Greek. He, he knew, he would, he knew um, the Iliad and the Odyssey in Greek. He would have known Virgil in Latin. Those, those would have been given as a student. Um, he knew lots of languages. You can see the effect in his syntax because his syntax is tortured. See, um, T.S. Eliot is very critical. He, he thinks one of the most harmful influences in the English language is Milton because of what he does. When you, by the time you get to Wordsworth, you see it clearing up because Wordsworth is returning to the language of ordinary men. That's one of the virtues of Wordsworth. Um, he was very serious about the epic tradition. So there shouldn't be a question. When he sat down to write this epic, he, he, there's two purposes. One of them you already know. One of them I'm going to make clear next week. 
One of them was to justify the ways of God to men. We know that. That's, he's, that's a stated purpose. He's very, he's very clear about that. Given his Christian beliefs, he wants to make something clear in the way that he handles Genesis, the fall. That's, it, that can't be questioned. That's so clear in what he does. But we've seen, so, and remember, the, the epic tradition comes from the word epos, epic. The word, epos means word, reason, song. But epos, the Greek epos, also connotes a divine quality, a divine word, something beyond human. It includes the human word, but at, includes something else as well. That's why every epic begins with the poet invoking a god, a goddess, the Calliope, the goddess. Because the poet knows that if he doesn't have divine help, he will never be able to show how the gods interact with men. And if the founding, the refounding that takes place is going to take place, it can only happen with the help of a god because men are too screwed up in their disorders to do it by themselves. That's one of the things you learn. The humans are caught up in some problem they can't get out of by themselves. I hope that's clear. Yeah. So what we learn in all the epic is the gods intervene and do something to help the humans deal with the disorder and, and in such a way that it will lead to a new founding. A pe the people will be reconstituted with a new identity. The whole action of the epic is in a sense um, turning its back on an old world because of its disorders and trying to bring a new order into being. That's what every epic is about. Every epic hero bears a divine task. It's a divinely appointed task. The gods are there. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, <coughs> Dante when we get there. Uh, Milton knew all that. <coughs> but we've seen, given his Christian beliefs, that what he does is something no, no other epic poet had done. He, he took Scripture, Dante doesn't even though do that, even though he would have known Dante and read him. He goes back to Genesis, to the source of all the problems of all the other epics. So what he's doing is looking at the story behind all the other stories. I hope that's clear. In that sense, what, he, what he's given us is the universal epic, the one epic that explains all the others. So Homer would have never understood the fall. He wasn't a Christian. I think Dante or Milton thinks Dante is probably wrong in some ways because he's a Catholic. In taking Genesis, he knows that he's going back to the causes of all disorders. And, and we know that already um, from everything we know about him. By the time we get to the two books in, in, that we're dealing with today, we're going to go to the crux of the problem because when Raphael starts explaining things to Adam, he's going to say, this is what caused the fall. It was when God begot the son that Satan became envious and on the basis of that envy he revolted. So Milton is explaining everything the, the ways of God to men. Okay, And you know that um, by taking Satan as apparently the epic hero, he's undermining the whole tradition because in all other epics the epic hero is a good person. He's, he's showing that indirectly by what he's doing, that, that man has no goodness on his own. That we've got this new epic hero, and he's not going to be answered until the son does something, and ultimately Christ.
And we have, we have to look at that because the whole germ of the poem is there in that action involving Satan, Adam and Eve, the son who's going to come down and offer himself, and finally Christ. Okay. Last time we looked at books two and three, we saw the council in heaven. Remember the gods, the, sorry, the devils gathered to decide what they were going to do. We saw that what happened there was an inversion of the Aristotelian mean, virtue. Is everybody clear on that? There's always two extremes, and the middle position is the mean. What Milton, what Milton is showing us is that there is no virtue, human virtue. Um, what we saw, what we see in the council in heaven is the metaphysics of all evil. The metaphysics of all evil. The source of all evil is there. It's in Satan's revolt. And what we learn when we, when we look at that scene is in the council of the devils, remember you've got one devil taking one extreme, another devil taking another, and another taking the middle position. All of them were self-deceived. They put them forward as plausible arguments. And there was, we looked at this. Remember, all of them don't have a sense of being, of the, the real depth of things. So they're all they're deluded, they're deceived, they're self-deceived, they're using reason. For Milton, that council in heaven is a parody of every argument he witnessed politically in the world when these different parties were arguing about the wars that they were, the Anglicans going to war with the Presbyterians, the Presbyterians going back at war with the Anglicans. That every political argument had its, its archetype source here. This is the source of all evil. So we can call this the metaphysics of evil. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Is everybody clear? It was followed by the council in heaven. And what we saw was its opposite. Um, the father knows what's going on. And he asks, the son says, are you just going to let your creation go because remember the fall's already taken place the book begins with the devils in hell the son says you're just going to give up your creation and, and the father says um, the devils fell willfully man was tricked um, they have to stay there unless somebody can deliver them and the son offers himself so and even in that you've got a parallel because that satan is the one who stands up and says I'll be the one who will take on this task. The son says, I'll be the one to save man. So you've got the metaphysics of good and evil. You've got Milton's presentation of the cause of all evil in the world, on the one hand, and all goodness in the world. And all goodness rests, derives from the father, and most particularly the son, because the son is the one who's going to ultimately become the Messiah to, to, to answer this injustice. <coughs> Is everybody okay? That's where. And remember, three ends with after the meeting, or it, the scene shifts from the council in heaven to Satan going on his way. And it's there that he sees the limbo of vanities, um, where he sees all things, all things on the earth that have to do with vanities going after death. And he includes in that largely the Catholic Church and all of its. All of the orders, because like Wycliffe, he, he believed that the orders were illusory, false, vanities, um, all of their worldly vanities. And then he, he comes to, he, he meets Uriel, who tells him where Eden is, and he goes to heaven. And, okay?
two things I've asked everybody to be aware of. Um, Milton, remember that the whole poem is written in a heroic language, so one of the hard things we have to do is sort out the poetry in which all characters speak. There's nothing that Satan says that isn't in heroic verse. That presents a problem to us because it, it imparts a quality of heroism to everything he does just by virtue of the verse. Um, but remember, at the very beginning, Milton said the most important, he, he invoked the Holy Spirit. So one of the questions he's presenting to us in the beginning is, does he see this poem as prophetic? On the same status as Moses. He's, looking, he's going to look at Genesis and he's invoking the Holy Spirit to tell him, <coughs> to inspire him, to help him tell this story. And he says that, he, he, remember there's that line where he says, you love nothing more than the inner spirit. I can't remember the language, but, but not the outward temple. That was indirectly a, a slight at established religions because they all worship in temples. Um, and it recalls all that Christ said about, you know, rebuild this temple in three days. And the Jews didn't understand it. His disciples didn't even understand it. So we have to keep in mind Milton as a poet and his beliefs. And we have to keep in mind Satan. And remember, it's really important to see this. So much of what Satan says seems rationally plausible. He keeps making these arguments. But we know, without a question, I think, He's absolutely self-deceived in everything he does. He doesn't see. I mean, he's constantly blaming God. Um, he's, he's deceiving the devils. They're all self-deceived. The, interesting, the reading this morning in scriptures, remember, if the, the Jews are accusing Christ of using Beelzebub to cast out demons, and Christ says, if I'm doing that, then how are you casting them out? One of the things that's really interesting here, and we don't see it that way, but keep it in mind, there's no way the devils can stand on their own. The very nature is self-deceived and divided. So even if they're coming together, in some ways that's got to be an irony. We, we learned that what happened in the council with the devils was set up by Satan. He set the whole thing up. So Satan is a liar. He's the cause of lies. He blames God. He doesn't know himself. Remember when he gets to sin and death and he meets his daughter, he didn't even know her. So in some sense, he doesn't know himself. One of the things that defines him is self-love. The daughter says to him, when I, you know, in that moment of self-love, when he made his love of himself greater than God, she springs out of his heaven. Allegorically, that's one way Milton has of showing us what, who Satan is. So he's a liar. He's a victim. Constantly presents himself as a victim. It's God's fault over and over and over again. He deceives, he tricks. He's going on this quest um, to undo God's work. And, and Milton set it up so that we know when he sets off, God's watching it all. Um, he's not pulling over anything on God. So one of the questions we're, we have to ask is, why does God allow this? He's watching it all the time. Why is God letting this happen? Um, over and over and over again. Even when we get to the battle in heaven, why is God allowing it? What's going on here? What's this all for? Um, <clears throat> and um, he, he, everything he does, he does in a spirit of injured merit, that phrase at the very beginning. 
He believes that he was wrongfully treated. Injured merit. God should not have elevated the son. That was an arbitrary act, and because it was arbitrary, it was despotic, it was wrong. So he's right in his rebellion. And because he's turned away from God, there's nothing that he does that doesn't have the intent to destroy. So those are the basic qualities we've got in Satan, and we'll watch them. One last thing, it's interesting to watch this heroic quest because remember when, when this trumped up council takes place involving the devils, we learn that Beelzebub and Satan had already talked about it, so it's a setup, even, even if the other devils doesn't know it. So when they say, who are we going to send? Because Beelzebub, Beelzebub is the one who says, all of these, these three positions of the three demons, they're all wrong. The only thing we can do is destroy that there was some rumor that this new world would be created. Maybe we can get back at God by destroying that. So that's trumped up. It's set up so Satan can say, because nobody else is going to raise their hand, Satan can say, I'll go. You know, I'm the great hero. The whole thing is undercutting the heroic tradition, that it's all an illusion. Heroic acts are self-deceived. That's fundamental to everything going on here. Um, a thing to keep in mind. So when he leaves the legion of devils in this heroic stance, look how great I'm going to be. And, and I mean, there's something to them. This, I'm going to get, this is where we're going next week. Because one of the, I suggested this. I'm, next week I'm going to deal with it explicitly. So many critics admire Satan more than God. And I think, understandably, when, I mean, I read you some of the passages of God. With all his faults, he, he still wants to risk. He, he takes on chaos, you know, in that journey. He gets almost close to extinction. But here, here's where I'm going. So he has all these apparently heroic qualities. He's heroic, noble language, and he's risking things the other devils don't. Um, interestingly, as he approaches his end, he takes on lesser forms. So when he gets to Eden, remember, he takes the form of various animals, and then ultimately he takes a form of a toad, and when he whispers in Eve's ear the night she's dreaming. And at the very end, when we get there, he'll take the, and he takes the form of a serpent when he tempts her. So here's this heroic, I mean, think about what Milton is doing here. This figure, an angel, the greatest of angels, starts out with this noble posture, and what we're watching is, is his gradual decline from this angel to an animal, to a toad, to a serpent, and it'll get worse at the end after the fall when all the angels, when he returns. We'll see what happens there. So Milton is very clear that from the beginning there was something fundamentally wrong with Satan and his quest. We only, we only needed time to see what, it would, what would happen to him. Okay. Any questions about any of that? Okay, here's where we are. This is crucial. We are at the turning point in the book. This is absolutely crucial. Everything in the first couple of books has to do with Satan. When he gets to where we are now, this is crucial. He's in Eden, and now we've stepped out of a mythic world, and we are squarely in Genesis. I can't say that strongly enough. 
I hope that's clear. Isn't We've been dealing. Is the mythic world too? Well, hold, yeah, but I want, yeah, it is done, but right, it is, particularly if you, but here I want to make it. The treatment of Satan is absolutely realistic. The, the one fault that most critics have, I certainly do, is when he meets sin and death because they're allegorical figures. They're, they, just, they just don't belong in that world. Everything about Satan is believable, and then he meets these two figures who are allegorical. But his treatment of him is realistic. Now, now we're, we're going to a setting that actually occurs in the Bible. We're actually going to Genesis. So we're shifting to a prophetic work. That's the point I want to underscore. Now he's going to deal with what's, re what's actually represented in a prophetic work in Genesis. Okay, So this is an important shift. I'm going to just quickly summarize 4 and 5. Um, I want to look at the opening because I think it's so important. But book 4 opens with Milton expressing this regret. Um, if only the first parents had had the warning that John speaks in Revelation. In the book of Revelation, John gives this warning, and, and book four opens with Milton alluding to that and saying, oh, if only our first parents were warned. Now, hold on to that, because you know what's gonna happen next is, they're gonna be warned. Raphael's coming. That's not a small matter here, because that does, that does not occur in Genesis. Raphael does not show up in Genesis to warn Adam. So one of the questions we've got to ask is, what does that do for our reading of Genesis? Satan approaches Eden. He sees the sun. He expresses his hatred for it. Um, Uriel watches it all. Satan arrives, and he is almost overcome at the beauty of Eden. It's presented as this pristine, sylvan, pastoral world. It belongs to the pastoral tradition, which Milton would have known by heart. That whole, it's a literary genre, the whole pastoral tradition with shepherds and poets singing their songs. Adam and Eve are represented, um, and he, he hates the happiness that they share, but he also sees a resemblance between them and God. He immediately sees that these are creatures made in his image. It's what makes him hate them more. Um, the sun sets. Uriel goes off to tell Gabriel what he saw. Adam and Eve retire. They say their prayers, and um, everything about them is courtly, gracious, um, humble. They are absolutely one as a pair. And it's clear that when they go to bed that night for their nuptials, for the sex that occurs, that it is in every way somehow um, lacking any passion. It's, it's, a, it's a different kind of an exchange, as Milton presents it. So we're seeing Adam and Eve before the fall. Um, Gabriel sends out a couple of angels, uh, Ithuriel and Zephon, to watch over because Uriel's told him that there's this angel that might pose a threat to Adam and Eve. Book five opens with um, Adam and Eve awaking and Eve tells Adam of her dream, um, in that dream she said she saw an angel come to her who whispered these things to her, tempted her, said, eat this apple. And remember, the only prohibition they have is not to eat of the tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil. Adam's response is to console her, to comfort her, said, don't worry. And act interesting, he uses the word evil, even though that word can't have any meaning for him. He doesn't know it yet. Um, says that 
um, it's little enough to deal with to have just one pro this one prohibition that God made not to worry about it, that we shouldn't complain, we shouldn't grieve over it. It's little enough that God should ask that of us and he made us. So they go off. Um, God watches all of this. He knows that Satan is tempting. He calls Raphael to him and sends Raphael to warn Adam. Now that's where it gets really more than interesting because we know that Raphael never appears in Genesis. Raphael's going to go and warn. He's going to He's an angel, so he's going to give Adam all this knowledge that an angel has about the cause of things, the earth, where it came from. And eventually he's going to, he's going to say, if only you're obedient, one day you will become as the gods, because he's just described what it's like. And Adam's response is, what do you mean if only obedient? Because he has no clue that it would be otherwise. It's at that point that Raphael describes the war in heaven, says this is what's happening, or what had happened, because it's already taken place. So, Adam has been warned. That doesn't happen in Genesis. Why did Milton do these things? Serious question. Because remember, book four opens with, oh, oh, if our first parents had only heard the warning of John in Revelation, Apocalypse. And he hadn't, because Apocalypse hadn't been written then. You know, this is Adam and Eve, it's before time. But in Milton's account, He's, he's been warned, and he's been given a picture of evil and the dangers of Satan. What does that do for our understanding of the fall? What is Milton showing us? What does that do for our understanding of Adam and Eve? Um, it's here in, book, in the middle of book five, when Adam describes the cause of the war, that we get this exchange between the father and son where the Father says, this is, this is he whom I've begotten, praise him. And when Satan sees that, he finds in that occasion all of his arguments to justify his revolt. God had no business taking one of a kind that he shared as an angel, we've got to come to this, and made arbitrarily um, raised him above the rest of us. We'll look at the lines. So here in book five, we have the crux of the entire book and the explanation for all other epics. Here's the cause of all evil. This is the cause of Satan's revolt. This is the source of all evil in the world. Abdul, who is one of the angels in Satan's legions, um, opposes Satan. And the book ends with Abdul walking out. And I think it's a really important episode because I think in some ways, Abdul is Milton's depiction of what he thinks every person, every person should be able to do. Because if you look at Milton's life, that's his life. That the individual, remember this is right at the center of the Reformation, the individual should be strong enough to stand up against all forms of oppression, all forms of established authorities. The center of his life is that the individual has to have a strength within himself to resist all that, because otherwise, chaos. So it's not an accident that he ends that chapter with Abdiel. One, one angel having the strength to answer Satan and his masses and walk away. And we'll see Abdiel in the, in the war in heaven when the, angel, when the good angels and bad angels meet. Satan and Abdiel will meet again. Okay. okay, that's just a quick summary. Any, I want to look at a couple of passages now, but... 
Let me do this because I want to just, what I'm going to do is quickly go through some passages and then focus on a couple that I think are really worth taking some time. Do you all want to get something to eat or take a, a minute because I know that that's a lot. Why don't you take two minutes? Let's get something to eat or take a break or shake hands with old friends maybe. <laughs> Yeah, 
in the right man's in my office of an all of the color and the guys are in the anyway Can we can we start? I'll tell you, yeah, I can see that. I can see that clearly. It, it's, yeah, it's interesting. When I taught that fourth grade, same sort of thing. I mean, there was a teacher there, so she would have jumped on, yeah. but I just said, can we start in? But I can see what you're talking about with the high school group, because you're no longer that innocent kid, and you're not quite, but right. the rowdiness and the, yeah, I don't, God, I can't, oh. My brother teaches high school, and he actually does that. He just stands there. And all of a sudden, people realize that he's, he's just there standing and there, and they're like, <laughs> "Yeah, good." I said it's just very like quiet. The kids were getting bad. I would just lower my voice. Yeah. Middle school is worse than high school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's start. Turn to book four, opening. I'm just going to read through some passages. Um, be patient with me, because it's going to take some doing. But I want I want to. I want to do this because I know, I believe, that some of you have trouble reading Milton, that his language is not easy. It'll, it'll clear up a little bit in the reading of it, I think. And I'll just make comments. But I want to try to cover some important ground, and then I'd like to single out a couple of passages. Would the two of you behave, you two high school students here in this class, how's that for a raised voice? There's that, that's good. I mean, sorry, Mary Jane, would you behave here, please? <laughs> Oh, I, that's going to get on. That's why I have to sit in the front. I hope I can delete this stuff. I don't know how to edit these things. You, you are going down in infamy for the rest of your life. You're on record. Book four. Though for that warning voice which he who saw the apocalypse heard cry in heaven aloud, and when the dragon put the second route, came furious down to be revenged on men. Woe to the inhabitants of earth. That's John's warning. Okay. That now while time was, that is in our time, the time of Adam, that is we're no longer in that heavenly time, we're dealing with humans. 
While that time was, our first parents had been warned the coming of their secret foe and escaped happily, so escaped his mortal stare. Oh, if only they could have been warned. And we know they're going to be warned because Raphael's coming next. So Milton's going, oh, if they could have only been warned. They're, in fact, they're going to be warned. Just very quickly, any response to this? I, I don't want to open this up. I don't want to get any, but any thoughts at this point? I want to come back to this if nobody says anything here because this to me is extraordinary in some ways. Lord God sent his son to, to save us because we were deceived, but then he's saying, and we didn't have warning, but he's saying we were warned. That makes it kind of confusing. Yeah. His premise is different. I want to go on, but let me... What does that do for the fall? And what, my concern here is that Milton seems to be showing an empathy, a pity. Oh, if they could have only... I mean, that's interesting in itself, number one. But he's saying only if they could have been warned, we could have avoided all this. Well, they're going to be warned, and the fall is still going to take place. What does that do for our understanding of Adam and Eve? Certainly Adam. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Weak. It doesn't it make him worse? Mm -hmm. It makes him worse, far worse. And I just hold on to this for a second. It makes him worse, and there's something to be said for that, as if Milton is underscoring his awareness that even if people are warned, they don't have the strength to do it, that they're weak. So it underscores that. Okay, now this is Milton, but it's hard... For me, there are a couple of reasons. There are a couple of them. There's one more, but I want to hold off on it. But So already here, there's a change in Genesis in the way that we're looking at Adam. Okay. Go to um, line 73. Milton comes to, to approach the sun, about line 35 or so. To thee I call, but with no friendly voice, and add thy name, O sun, to tell thee how I hate thy beams. I fell... How glorious once above the sphere, till pride and worse ambition threw me down, warring in the heaven against heaven's matchless king, from me, who, from me whom he created what I was into that bright eminence, and with his good abraded none, nor was his severe hard service. service hard, what could be less than to afford him praise. Easiest thing to do, he created me, just to be grateful. The easiest recompense and pay him thanks, how do? Yet all is good proved till me proved ill in me and wrought but malice lifted up so high I disdained subjection. And thought one step higher would set me highest, and in a moment quit the debt immense of endless gratitude, so burden them still pain, still to owe, forgetful what from him I I still received, and understood not that a grateful mind by owing owes not but still pays. That is, in your own life, you, you, you just live in gratitude. It's not like you're paying a debt. That's part of your life because you've been given something. Um, by owing, owes not, but still pays at once indebted and discharged. What burden then? What did I have to deal with? So here's another instance of Satan ex expressing sentiments that suggest a division, an awareness of a gratitude that he didn't pay, um, Almost some sense, again, of a regret as he 
recalls it. Line 75, me miserable, which way shall I fly? Infinite wrath and infinite despair, which way I fly is hell. Myself am hell, and in the lowest deep, a lower deep, still threatening to devour me opens wide. Every act that he takes will make his condition worse, whatever he does. It's going to be an infinite, infinitely increasing pain. Um, to which the hell I suffer seems a heaven, oh then, yeah, to which the hell I suffer seems a heaven, oh then at last relent. Can Satan have that thought? Is there no place left for repentance? None for pardon left, none left but by submission, and that word disdain forbids me, and my, and my dread of shame amongst the spirits, pride keeps him from doing it, disdain, contempt. He's actually, intellectually, it's as if he's looking at the option of doing it, but the fact that it would cost him his pride keeps him from doing it. Um, oh, then at last relent, is there no place left for repentance, none for pardon left, none left, but by submission in that word disdain forbid me and my dread of shame among the spirits beneath, whom I seduced with other promises and other vaunts, then to submit, boasting I could subdue the omnipotent, uh, me, they little know how dearly I abide, that boast so vain. They can't see through him. It's all vanity, it's unreal. Under what torments inwardly I groan, when they adore me on the throne of hell, with diadem and scepter high advanced, the lower still I fall, only supreme in misery. Every act he takes makes him worse, even if they don't see it. Um, only supreme in misery. Such joy ambition finds, but say I could repent and could obtain by act of grace my former state. How soon would height recall high thoughts? How soon unsay what aimed feigned submission swore? That is, even if he were to return, he'd face the same envy again. Since he said he, he really wants to be greater than God, and he knows that if he went back, he would be facing the same envy. And, um, reenact the thing all over again. Go on over. Therefore, this is about line 105. Therefore, as far from granting he as I from begging peace, all hope excluded thus, behold, instead of us outcasts exiled, his new delight man can create it. And for him this world, so farewell hope, and with hope farewell fear, farewell remorse, all good to me is lost, evil be thou my good. By thee at least divided empire with the heavenly king I hold by thee, and more than half perhaps will reign. This man ere long, and this new world shall know. This is corresponding to that moment. Those of you who've done the epic will see this. You know that there's a point in each one of the epic where the epic hero, even, he, even if he underwent a period of darkness and confusion, he reaches a point where he commits himself definitely to the quest. Achilles, when he goes back to the war, Odysseus when he gets home, Aeneas um, when he goes to the underworld and he gets the mission from his dad, all of his confusions stop. He knows what he's going to do. This is that moment. And once again, it reinforces the sense that up until this moment, there may have been a confusion that he's divided. So here we are again. But at this point, Satan knows exactly what he's going to do. This is the moment when the epic hero commits himself to his task. Um, he 
He sees Adam and Eve going over to about line 285. He looks down and sees the two of them, two of far nobler shape, erected, that as they stand out from all other things in creation, godlike, erect, with native honor, clad in naked majesty, seem lords of all, and worthy seem, for in their looks divine the image of their glorious maker shone, truth, wisdom, sanctitude, severe and pure, severe but in true filial freedom placed, whence true authority in men, that is, that's his image of that true authority that men attain after the fall, I mean, in our lives, when we exhibit that same sort of thing in ourselves, in whatever our circumstances. Though both um, not equal, as their sex not equal seem for contemplation, he and valor form. Just a quick comment, why valor? The fall hasn't taken place. I'm saying that because some of, the, some of the best criticism, Samuel Johnson, who was almost a contemporary of Milton's shortly later, said that what Milton was doing was writing this universal poem because it dealt with the causes of all things. But one of the difficulties is that he was going back to a, a condition we have no experience of. We don't know, but the pre, we're in a fallen world. So Milton's the, is going back and actually showing it and in some sense there's a question of not whether he's idealizing it and more importantly whether he's not projecting qualities from our world back into it. Valor and Adam? For what? There's no, there's no wars, they're not going to be needed. Um, for contemplation he and valor form, for softness she and sweet attractive grace, he for God only, she for God in him. Keep in mind Mary's yes. Because that wasn't to Joseph, it was to God. So we're getting the beginnings of Milton's view of man and woman. And according to his view, man is made for contemplation, woman is made for to be compatible with man. Um, in his divorce track, um, the, the, the track that he read, wrote in defense of divorce, his argument was that, um, particularly because it took up scripture, remember God said, whoever God has joined, let no man sunder. That belongs to God. That's why in the Catholic Church marriage is um, sanctified. It's a holy act. It's a, um, why the Catholic Church is so tough on abortions, or I mean on uh, divorces. Mill's argument in that track was that God, that Christ meant that for the Pharisees. That was his way of getting around it. His argument was the reason for marriage was compatibility. That man had a, a far more active intellect and that women were soulmates. That the only reason for marriage was compatibility. And if they were incompatible, it would be a grounds for divorce. Where are we in the modern world? Absolutely back to Milton. There it is. I remember, the, I, I don't know if you guys know G.K. Chesterton, but he's, He's actually the man that brought me into the church. When I read Orthodoxy, I was gone. I mean, I, it was a book that almost changed my life. In one of his collections of essays, he's writing about men and women. I think he's probably got Milton on his mind. I don't know, but maybe not. But he says, if compatibility were a reason for getting divorced, men and women should never marry because by nature they're incompatible. 
I mean, what, I mean, what is, is there anything more sensible, in my mind, is there anything more sensible? Men and women are different. I think I told you that story when Suzanne and I first began going together. She grew up without a dad. She had a sister, so it was all women when we started going together. She reached a point early on in our marriage when she said to me, you're so other. <laughs> well, isn't it true? I mean, don't women look at men and say, God, you are so other. And don't men look at women and try to figure them out as if, as if they're not other because they are? We are so different as beings. Um, and we know where, <laughs> never mind. I was gonna say, we know where the source of all problems rest. <laughs> I should leave that one alone. Remember, it's recorded forever. I know. I can expect blackmail any day. Anyway, here's Milton. On man and woman. Okay, but I want to because this is 440. This to me is crucial. Eve recalls the moment of her coming to life. She wakes up. This is line 440. O thou for who and from whom I was formed. She came out of Adam. It's for him that she has her end. I was formed flesh of thy flesh, and without whom am and to no end, her single end is him as a man. My guide and head, thou that hast said in just and right, for we to him indeed all praises owe and daily thanks I chiefly who enjoy so far the happier life. She's, she feels more grateful in having him than she assumes he does for her. So she describes that moment of awakening in her creation and looking around and not seeing anything and setting off. Now go to 460 or so. She comes to a pool. I thither went with unexperienced thought and laid me down on the green bank to look into the clear, smooth lake that to me seemed another sky. What a beautiful, this is so easy. His language is just extraordinary, you know. That it really, if you looked into a lake sometimes, it's hard, to, the lake is so clear, it's such an accurate reflection that it could almost be a second sky there. Um, to look into the clear, smooth lake that to me seemed another sky. As I bent down to look just opposite, a shape within the watery gleam appeared bending to look on me. I started back. I started back, but pleased. I that is, she's so shy because she's newly awake. She doesn't know things. She sees this image staring at her, and she's taken aback. But she's so drawn by its beauty that she goes back. I started back. It's, it started back, but pleased. I soon returned. Pleased, it returned as soon with answering looks of sympathy and love. There I had fixed mine eyes till now, and pined with vain desire, had not a voice thus warned me, what thou seest, what there thou seest, fair creature, is thyself. Adam comes along, and it makes it clear. If he had not come along, she would not have been able to come away from that image. She would still be there. Stop for a second. Define Eve. Characterize Eve. Innocent. What else? What do you do with this? The fact that she, first of all, she's so drawn when she pulls back, she can't pull back entirely. She's so drawn to it that she goes back. Once she goes back, she can't take her eyes off of it. Vain. Vain. Narcissistic. Mm -hmm. This is the, a replay, a reworking of the nar narcissism myth that 
Remember the young boy looked in the pool and couldn't take his eyes away. Except Milton gives it to the woman here that, that there's an element of narcissism. She looks at her image and is, is so in love with it that she can't come away. But she doesn't know that it's her image no. in that pool, right? Right. She's taken by beauty. Yes. Yeah, but she can't come, yes. Yeah, but she can't come away from it. But it's beauty she can't come away from. She doesn't know it's hers. Hers, yeah. Anything else? So is she vain, in fact, since she doesn't know it's her? Yeah. I mean, good question. Anybody? Does this, I mean, interesting. Does this remind you of anybody in the book, anything like this before this moment? Let me put it, what happened when, when sin describes her birth to Satan? She, he doesn't know himself. Do you remember in that scene where she describes that moment in heaven, the moment of revolt, when she, she describes him as, I don't want to go back to it, but she de describes him as being so in love with himself that he couldn't turn away, and that's that conception where she, she comes into being, sin. And what we have in that moment is the turning from God because he makes his love of that greater than God. Is Satan aware of that it's him, that that's him? You all know what I'm talking about. Yeah. But he, to me that's different. I mean, this reminded me so much of Tilia Faces. But she's looking at, in my mind, God, the image of God in her. Why do you see God? Because she doesn't even know it that No, much. okay. But she's looking at what she sees as beautiful, and that's what God made her in his image, or Adam and then. We don't know God at this point. I mean, we, we do. I know we do. She doesn't. Okay, no, about. but she's seeing something, to me, intrinsically beautiful. Yes. And yes, she might have looked on that, but I don't see that as vain. And I... I see Satan more in control of willfulness at that point when he made that decision. Yes. I didn't leave here, but Adam pulled her away and she wanted, I mean, right. she didn't resist Right. That. Yeah, I don't know that we can see a vanity or a pride here, but certainly a, what Milton's making us aware of, of the power of beauty. Yeah. I, I, I don't know that we can bring God in it. And just remember, um, there is, there's a difference. There's a difference in what Satan... But when sin presents herself to him as his, her father, he doesn't know it. He doesn't see himself at that moment. And as a matter of fact, put it another way. Wait, wait a second, because I, everybody, I think every, the comments we're making, everybody right now are really good. He doesn't see himself then. He doesn't see himself well ever anyway. The question that I want to ask here, because I, I don't know that we can bring in vanity or pride, there's a narcissistic element, even if, even if it's not aware. She falls in love with that image, and it has such a power that she can't pull away. Satan doesn't see himself. My real question is this. Is Milton setting this up? I mean, there's a, there is a parallel here. And it's interesting for me, because this is before the fall. The fall hasn't taken place. I want to come back to this in a minute, because maybe not here, but... Um, Anyway, the fall hasn't taken place. Is Milton setting up the fall by what he's doing here, by implicitly ma by making a veiled link to Satan and self-love? 
even if it's not out of vanity, does, does, is this his effort at explaining what happened with Eve? Let me turn this around, get away from the text. I asked this question of Suzanne, and I, maybe it's not a good time, but I, I'm going to do it anyway. Most people assume that when, we're going to come to it in a couple of books, so I don't want to take much time, but most people assume that, that um, Satan appealed to Eve's vanity. Oh, if you eat this, you'll be as a god. We're going to get this when she describes her dream with Adam. So once again, we're getting a foreshadowing, just this dim foreshadowing of what's to come already. So the warnings are increasing. And it's hard to read them without getting the sense that she fell from pride. She was tempted to be. Now, I want to ask this. I just, we don't have to take it up, but I want to ask this question. I don't see any pride before the fall. Before the fall. Um, my assumption is the pride is a consequence of the fall. Okay? Pride is a consequence that our disordered loves come. There are things that Milton does that seem to plant seeds that suggest there was something wrong before it. And most of them lie in Eve, the woman. Because you can see that his, he sees the man as nobler and the woman more given to her body, more given to her fancy and these other things. If it wasn't, let's, for a moment, hypothetically, I, I, and I only want to take a moment. If it wasn't pride, let's get that out of our heads just for a second. This is a game for a moment. If it wasn't pride, what was it? What did Satan do with Eve? Get aside that whole Miltonic way. Leave it out just for a moment, out of curiosity. What could Satan have appealed to that would have been great enough to tempt her? Is there anything else? If you kept pride out, I'm just asking. It's a hypothetical. It's a theoretical question. Possibly envy. Pride on the scale. Envy is has its roots in pride. Okay. Remember, we'll see it done. Pride is the cause of all sins. Envy's next because if you make yourself too proud you're going to envy when somebody has something you don't. So envy is implied in, or pride is implied in envy. One of the things you said before is, is that uh, man was created for contemplation, women were created, Eve was created as a companion, for compatibility. What was his? Compatibility. Yeah. And that was just a little bit before. So is there, is there some possibility that... Here, sorry, Debbie, hold on. For contemplation, he and valor form. For softness and sh for softness, she and sweet, attractive grace. He forgot only; she forgot in him. Sorry. Go. So, is is Satan is appealing to something that is fundamental in women or in Eve, as if if in fact he is saying that that she was not. She was not created for contemplation, but she was created for these other things. And so it would be easier for him to play to those um, attributes that she had because it's compatibility. So if I say, you know, I want to be your friend, um, you know, we're going to be buds rather than 
saying to you, you know, I could say the same thing to you and, and you be Adam and Adam is, I'm, I'm contemplating. I'm not, you know, this, this, there's an attraction here, but that's not what my purpose is. And so I, I don't, I don't know if, if there is, it's setting it up so that this is the way women are and this was easy for Satan to get to because of these attributes yeah. that women have. Let's leave it because this is, um, I'm going to, do you want to, can you just take 30 seconds and say what you said, Doc, just to throw it out? Well, I, I don't want to take any time, but if you can. If he sees herself as being created to be a companion to Adam, to be attractive to him, and Satan says, this will make you more of what mm -hmm. you want to be, mm -hmm. you know, it'll make you more attractive to Adam, you'll be able to help him more then then that would be something that would appeal to her. That isn't what you said the other night, Keith. No, no, I don't remember what I said. Honestly, <laughs> God, I, I was struck. We were wrestling with this question before because we were going over the fall and I was asking Suzanne, her, her I don't want to take any time, I'm going to throw this out and give it. Her comment was, if it wasn't pride, was it innocence? Do you remember what you said about it? I thought it was really interesting. I'm going to leave it. If it wasn't, I mean, let's maybe, you know, maybe he awoke a pride in here. I mean, somebody can make that argument, but I just want to don't assume that for a minute because that's, you know, it's, 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 people sort of accept that without, if it wasn't pride, what else? Suzanne said the other night it was innocence. And I just like to throw that out together with the other things because it's worth looking at. You know, we're, Milton's presenting us a picture here. Um, it's asking for an understanding. But let's go on. Turn to um, line 735. The two have just said their nightly prayers to God. They're full of reverence. They're wonderfully um, respectful. And the two go to bed to observe their nuptial rites. This said unanimous and other rites observing none but adoration pure which God likes best. Any comment on that? Any thought about it? That is, they, they, they had the, the ritual, the rite of prayer right? They just went through this rite of prayer, and it was wonderful. Thus said unanimous, because they're blessing God, thanking him for, but thou hast promised from the two a race to fill the earth, who shall with us extol thy goodness infinite, both when we wake and when we seek is now the gift of sleep. They know that they're going to be the source of a race of humans to come after them. They're thanking him for his bountifulness, his goodness. And then Milton says, this said unanimous and other rites observing none but adoration pure which God likes best. Is that of the slight of the Catholic Church again? Is that me? Well, Presbyterians don't like. Or, yeah, I mean, none of the lower, even, even though there are, but once again, there's this, what Milton, that, He's making it clear that there are these rights that go to the purity within a human person set off against all these other rights. This said unanimous and other rights observing none. They didn't observe any other rights, but adoration pure, which God likes best, into the innermost power they go. So now, book five, quickly. God watches all of this. He sends Adam, I mean, sends Raphael down. Um, to warn Adam 
Um, turn to line 550. This is the crux of the whole poem. Now, we're going to see this made explicit later, but, but I can tell you now. God's called his, um, his angels together to celebrate the beginning of his son. Um, he's watched everything that's happened. He knows the fall is going to take place. And um, we, are, we will learn later that one of the reasons he made creation was to spite Satan. That he didn't want Satan to have the last hand, so it answered him to fill up this, this good that he created that's now lost. The other angels, a third of the angels, he makes creation. That's the reason for the fall given. Here, we're taken to a scene in heaven where um, the Father is calling the host of heaven together to celebrate this moment with the Son. Around line 600, here all ye angels, progeny and light, thrones, dominations, princedom, virtues, powers, hear my decree, which unrevoked shall stand. This day I have begot, whom I declare my only Son, and on this holy hill him have anointed, whom ye now behold at my right hand. Your head I him appoint, and by myself have sworn to him shall bow all knees in heaven, and shall confess him Lord under his great vice-regent reign, abide united as one individual So We're going to be in union with each other, with him as our head. Earlier in book three, in the heavenly council, there was a description at the end of time, God, it's, it's, a, it's a strange passage. God is going to abdicate. He's going to give up his throne and all are going to be together, almost as if people are going to share this divine nature together. Um, Satan takes offense on this, line 680. All the angels go off to their different camps, Satan to his, and he wakes up one of his companions. The angels are sleeping in Milton's world. Sleepest thou, companion dear, what sleep can close thy eyelids? How can you, how can you sleep in a moment like this, is what he's saying. So late hath passed the lips of heavenly almighty, thou to me thy thoughts was want, I mine to thee was want to impart. Both waking were one. How thou can thou sleep? Dear, something awful has happened. How can you be sleep? We used to be united as one. New laws thou seest imposed, new laws from him who reigns. New minds may raise in us who serve new counsels to debate um, what doubtful, what is there debate in heaven? First of all, there never was. There's no, heaven is not, no debates are going on there. Only when the father did this with a son in Satan's mind. This is his reason. Assemble thou all those myriads which we lead the chief. Tell them that by my command, ere yet dim night or shadowy cloud withdraws, I am to haste and all who under me their banner wave homeward with flying march where we possess the quarter of the north there to prepare fit entertainment to receive our king, the great Messiah. This is all scorn. Going down, 705. But all obeyed the wanted signal and superior voice of their great potentate. For great indeed his name and high was his degree in heaven. His countenance as the morning star, he, he was the morning star that guides the starry flock, allured them and with lies drew after him the third part of heaven host. God watches all this. Well, again, has an exchange with the sun. He says, 
Such a foe is rising who intends to erect his throne equal to ours throughout the spacious north. The sun says, Mighty Father, about line 735, Thou thy foes justly hast in derision and secure, laughest at their vain designs and tumults vain, matter to me of glory whom their hate illustrates when they are all regal power given me to quell their pride. All is going to wait on what he does when he faces this foe, the multitudes of it. And in event no whether I be dexterous to subdue the rebels or be found the worst in it, and then we'll find out whether I'm strong or not, whether, whether my power is real or not. Any response to this? Can anybody imagine this exchange taking place between the Father and Son? Mm -hmm. If the Father and Son are a trinity and they indwell with each other, that's their nature, can anything like this pass? Number one, can you even imagine the Son saying, then we'll find out whether I'm the greatest or not? No. It's not going to happen. Interesting, interesting thing here, and I would like everybody to take this seriously. One of the first criticisms I ever heard of Milton, it stood out, but I don't think I ever fully appreciated it, was by Ivor Winters. It's a critic. I, I, um, lots of things wrong with him, but he was one of the most amazing influences on my life. His comment was that what Milton did was take the modern epic back to the Greek world. If you go back, those of you who've read the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid, I mean, you know that these are commonplace, these battles, but between individual people and leaders and commanders and they make up that Homeric Virgilian world. This is a Christian epic. It's going to the root of things. It's interesting that so often what Milton does is present the father, that is a Christian worldview. This is not Homer with, the, with Zeus and Athena and Poseidon and this is the son and the father, the father and son. He presents them in ways that are couched in Homeric terms, as if these battles would go on that way. So in one sense, even though he sees himself as moving the epic forward, it's a serious question whether he didn't take it back to a Jewish world and a Homeric world. Because over and over again, we keep getting these scenes that give it a heroic aspect to it, but in a way that is um, blatantly Homeric, Greek. Um, keep that in mind when we go to Dante, we're gonna, I mean, it's a different world, but it's hard to read these without f f calling to mind similar scenes in Homer, which is what epic heroes do all the time. They're always carrying, remember, we, they're always carrying the epic forward. But he's cast them in such a heroic vein that reminds us of that world. At one point, I'll read this passage when we get, I think it's the final, he, he has four invocations in the last one. He will actually say that he'd given his life thinking about doing heroic deeds, going back to that world, the Arthurian romances, and changed his mind. That he was actually going to move the epic forward to a Christian spirit. So just keep that in mind. What, are, what do we do with these, these difficult scenes like this and the way that Milt presents them? Um, Going all here, this is the um, page one thirty four. 
Oh, sorry, sorry, 785 or so. This is his argument for the, in support of the revolt. The only, um, and hurried meeting here, this only to consult how we may best with what may be devised of honor new receive him coming to receive from us me tribute yet unpaid, prostrate, vile, too much to one, but double how endured. That is, what are we going to do now that we're being asked to bow down to this son, this new Messiah figure? To one and to his image now proclaim, but what if better counsels might direct? So the son's been elevated to this position. It's arbitrary. It's the indication of a bad God. What do we do? So this is like the council in heaven. Here's the problems. How are we going to handle it? Except this is the one that led to the fall or the revolt. Is everybody clear? The, the, the book begins when the revolt has already taken place. We're in hell. And um, right now we're going back to that moment when intellectually it all started because Satan's giving his reasons for taking up this revolt with the Father. But what if better counsels might erect our minds and teach us to cast off this yoke? Will you submit your necks and choose to bend to the supple knee? You will not, if I trust to know you right. That is, we will not serve. Or if you know yourselves, natives and sons of heavenly possessed before by none, and if not equal all, yet free equally here, free, for orders and degrees jar not with liberty, but well consist who can in reason then or right assume monarchy over such as live by right his equals, if in power and splendor less and freedom equal. We can live with degrees. There's nothing against freedom in that, because we can be any God's superior. You know. but, to, but here's the thing, but to make one of their own, like a superior creature, lifted over the others. For him was an indication of a despotic God. But well consist with, when, who can in reason then or right assume monarchy over such as live by right and equal, even power and splendor less and freedom equal. Abdiel stands up and argues and said, line 830, um, how far from thought to make us less bent, rather to exalt our happy state under one head more near united. It was a natural thing to do. But to grant it thee un, un, unjust that equal over equals monarch reign, because the angels are treating Christ as if he's one among them, but elevated. Now hold on to this. That equal over equals monarch reign, thyself, though great and glorious, dost thou count or all angelic nature joined in one equal to him begotten son by whom as by his word the mighty father made all things even they says the only thing to do is bow down now hold on because this is complicated what seems to be being said here is this they're all of one nature angels begotten at at the moment of the the turn the father asks everybody to come forward to, um, his word is begot. This day I begot whom I declare. Well, one of the meanings of begot isn't just to beget, to bring in. It also means to elevate. So what, what the angels seem to be saying here is that they were all created of this nature, but God elevated the Son over all of them. Satan is objecting because that's an arbitrary act. 
Now hold on, I want to finish this and then come back to this question because it's a major one for the whole work. Abdiel says, what an arrogant fool you are, it's for God to decide our response should be obedience, submission. Um, that God made us, we're creatures, so we should obey him. Line 850. This is absolutely modern, absolutely modern. The apostate informed Morhadi thus replied that we were formed, that we were formed then sayest thou, and the work of secondary hands by task transferred from father to son. So father didn't do this, the son did it, he's the one who made us all. So he should legitimately, it's okay to have legitimately raised him. Strange point in new doctrine which we would know whence learn it. Where did you get this? Who saw when this creation was? Rememberest thou the making while the maker gave thee being? Were you there? We know no time when we were not as now, no none before. Self-begot, self-raised by our own... How modern is that? We fashion ourselves, we make ourselves. We're our own gods. We don't owe... God is the... According to a Christian theology, God is the only thing in reality that's sufficient to itself. We are contingent creatures. We were made by him. We don't exist self-sufficient. We're not gods. Satan is saying... Were you there to see it? How do you know? Self-begot we are, we make ourselves. And it's on that basis that the revolt begins. Now here's my question, serious one. We just, it's time for us to leave, but I want to take just a minute. It looks as if Milton has got in this scene, which is the crux of the whole work, this is the source of evil, an Arian position. You know the old heresies, you know that We've gone through. Arian was the one who believed that Christ was a superior creature, but he wasn't God the way God was. Um, and um, he could have he could have made that compatible with the Son still making the rest of creation. I mean, he's just a superior creature. Is this an Arian belief? And if it does, what does it do for Milton's understanding of the Trinity, if there is one? The fullness of God's mercy, if it comes from a son who is like the angels but elevated, what does that do for our understanding of the mercy of God? As it's a, because according to the Christian belief, broadly, not um, that the the Trinity is um, they all share one nature, so there's an indwelling, perfect indwelling of one in the others. So Christ is fully in the earth, sorry, the Son is fully in the Father, so is the Holy Spirit in the Son. In fact, according to the, the this new scripture or New Testament, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. He's, he's begotten in the union between the Father and Son. He brings Christ to us. What does this do for our understanding of the redemption and the mercy of God? If Christ is an image of the Father, in me you see the Father. If he's if he's not one with the Father, doesn't share his nature, doesn't indwell with him, what does that do for our understanding of the love that Christ offers or his mercy? We don't have to take this up fully right now, but I hope you see that this is not a small question. So, this is the crux of the whole point. There are going to be two points, two crucial points in this poem. This is one of them. The other will come later when um, 
Michael is going to show Adam a vision of Christ. That's the only glimpse we would get of Christ in the poem. It's a vision through Michael. And it, I mean, the whole poem will be going towards that second. And I'm going to ask, what does Milton do with it? What are we doing here? But this is a setup because this is the explanation for the fall. Why Satan revolted. Any no thoughts? We don't have to take this up. Um, let's stop. If you guys would give this some thought, and I'm glad to start next time we meet. Any comments on it? Anybody want to do anything? We can start then. But give this some serious thought. We're going to do the next two books. But here they get the four, five, six, seven. Do it six, seven next time. And remember, what happens in those books is Raphael is unfolding the nature of the universe. It's being given to Adam. It's being given to Adam. In fact, let me read this. Everybody hold on for a second. I don't like doing this, but... Hold on. Here, end of seven. Just You can just listen to it. Raphael is laying out the universe. And remember, everything that Adam gets, he gets from an angel. He gets from an angel. End of seven. So sung they and the imperium rung with hallelujahs. Thus was Sabbath kept, because he just described creation. He's going to show creation. He's going to show the nature of um, everything in the world. Um, thus, thus they sang the imperium ringing with hallelujahs. Thus was Sabbath kept. And thy request now fulfilled, because Adam had all these questions, that asked how first this world and face of things began. Where did everything come from? What does everything mean? He wanted to know. And it's interesting, during this time of the discussion, Eve goes inside, because she's not interested. She's not interested. She wants to get it from Adam. And there's a line that I'm going to read, that, but she wants to get it from Adam. Uh, first this world and face of things began and what before thy memory was done. By the way, God, this, I'm so, there's only one other man here besides myself and he's been here from the beginning. The rest are women. Makes me angry. Sorry. How first this world and face of things began and what before thy memory was done from the beginning. Listen to this. How first this world and face of things began and what before thy memory was done from the beginning that posterity informed by thee might know. He's telling him everything that happened before his memory even clicked in. And all that Raphael's telling him now will be passed on to his posterity. What does that do to our reading of Genesis? Hold that thought. Is everybody clear? Who's the author of Genesis? Who's the author of Genesis? Hmm? Moses? Was it attributed to Moses? God is the author through Moses. I just put the ending of this with that. See you next week. <laughs> Are there heavy things here or not? <laughs> 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 <laughs>